You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriting. This is Mark Meyer. My guest for episode 18 is Jill Sobule, who rocketed to fame with her second self-titled album in 1995 with the singles I Kissed a Girl and the one you're listening to now, Supermodel, which appeared on the soundtrack to the popular film Clueless. And yes, that I Kissed a Girl is way before Katy Perry's version, and she talks a little about that whole non-controversy. Jill is a wonderful singer-songwriter, great lyrics, catchy melodies, very thoughtful story songs. And even though she started with all this industry backing, I mean, her first album was produced by Todd Rundgren. She's lately been self-funding, doing the Kickstarter thing before Kickstarter even existed. We're going to be talking through Jetpack from her 2004 Underdog Victorious album. And we'll have a special appearance by her co-writer for that song, Robin Eaton. Then we'll talk about Empty Glass from her 2009 the California Years album, a song originally recorded for a musical called Prozac and the Platypus. And finally, we'll go back to her first album from 1990. The song is Pilar, parentheses, Things Here Are Different, from the album Things Here Are Different, and hear some about her early career. Finally, we're going to hear a brand new recording of a song that she's played live a lot recently, America Back, very relevant to today's politics. So I will have played Supermodel as the intro just because... Kissed a girl, I feel you're probably tired of that. That's the most famous thing. But Supermodel was still, I knew both the songs. I didn't know many of your songs before I kind of immersed myself in this. Either one. The whole kissed a girl thing, I'm, I actually have taken it back. Okay. Taken it back. I still get emails every week from people who were stuck in Alabama and they were 12 years old and somehow heard it because it was banned on a lot of stations ah. back in 95 and, and how that made, it did something for them. Helped okay. them. It was a double-edged sword for me, but I take it back. Yeah, the point of the opening music is just, oh yeah, that person. I, I remember that person. Oh yeah, <laughs> the- supermodel. And you know, it was the 25th anniversary, was it 20th or 20th anniversary last year. Yeah. And I did a lot of press. I, did, I didn't realize what impact that movie and that song had for a certain segment of society back then. So you had requested for the first song that we talked about to be Jetpack, from your 2004 album, Underdog Victorious. Why did you pick that one? Two reasons. It's one of my favorite songs. It's actually one of my more requested songs. And, and I love the story of it. I, I love it. it was written when I lived in Brooklyn and I was seeing someone who lived on the, by Columbia, on the Upper West Side. And it's kind of not worth it if you know New York. <laughs> it's just, he could have been in Chicago. It was just such a pain. But it, it was that feeling of, we were promised jetpacks. <laughs> I know they have them now, but still, not for popular consumption. But basically, it's an excuse to tell a love story. Also, a love note to New York. And I also wanted to do it because my friend is here visiting Robin Eaton from Nashville, who wrote it with me. Who's written a lot of songs with you, right? A lot of things on that album and the couple albums before that. And yes, he's there in the other room. I can always yell for him if there's any information you want. We're writing yesterday and today. I might have to have an interview with him later. Of course. <laughs> okay, well, let's play it and then we'll talk about it. Again, I'd fly above the stadium 
to watch my team win. Watch my team win. And if I had a jetpack, I'd bust into your door. I'd take you by the hand to the Jersey Shore. And underneath the moonlight, you'd want me even more. 'Cause I'd have a jetpack. I'd take you up so high. If I dropped you. So that was just a, a beautiful little acoustic pop song. I always wonder with that kind of thing, given the way that you write lyrics, acoustic guitar thing, do you think about the arrangement while you're doing it in terms of I want giant strings to come on for the second half of this, or is it just the self-standing thing that you can go around and you could busk it as far as you know, and that's the song, and then it doesn't. It's not until you actually get in the studio with the producer that you worry about the arrangement. I think it could go either way. I mean, the, the songs usually the songs are self-sufficient at first. Because I play solo a lot,、mm-hmm. especially in the last years when you don't have a thing called tour support, you rely on yourself, and it's great. And that song, I also thought there was a bit of Harry Nilsson in it. Oh yeah. And so, of course, while we're writing it, I'm hearing that kind of little arpeggiated guitar thing. I'm hearing the strings at the end. You know, everybody's talking about me. So. I noticed there's things about my writing that things from my childhood, some of my favorite things I can't get away from. They come in my head. So with Jetpack, it was a song that stands alone, but I did hear these things as the music evolved. The '70s thing that came into my head was the river flow, flow to the sea, and where that river goes, that's where I want to be. You know that that.、Uh... Yes. <laughs> well, same kind of thing, yeah. Which I guess explains a little about. Something that's so nice and sweet. I always wonder with the arrangement, how much syrup do you pour on it? And you were pretty restrained that it's you know just you, and then you have one little other guitar on the right side that's doing the arpeggio to kind of fill it out. But you're not drenched in reverb. In the hands of a different producer, yes, the strings are pretty lavish and lush when they do really get going. But it's still there's no point in which it just opens up and you have a super low bass and just a, th- a thundering like. <laughs> there's a lot of room. <laughs> No, you, you don't want the what was his name that did the Chicago hits in the eighties or you know David Foster. That you is... don't want the David Foster <laughs> treatment. And actually, Robin and his friend, we all did that record together. And I think I always have a thing, maybe because it's playing solo all the time, where I like to start where it's almost naked. So sometimes in production, we'll put everything like a kitchen sink in, and then you just. Take out and take out at、mm-hmm. first. And I always like a first-person chorus. I like it to be naked, and then I always think it more in a cinematic way. You know, not to be pretentious, but you know, you're going along and you're thinking, you know, jetpack, and then it kind of gets. I don't have a jetpack. I don't even have a car, and it kind of rises, and that's when it comes. You bring the strings up, but never at a what's his name again? David Foster. <laughs> So I've just actually started for the first time in like twenty years, actually playing out more under my own name, even though I have people backing me. Whereas it's always been a band thing before, and I, I feel like that makes it so. Since you're solo, even if you have a whole band, you could play half the songs just by yourself. They're there to see you. That's the the shtick, and it seems that has a direct effect on arrangements in terms of you can have 
this approach that you're talking about where it's just you for the first bit of it. I'm unfamiliar with what you were doing before your first album. Like, were you in a, a band where it was it had to be a more democratic thing or has it always just been you? I was in a couple bands, but it was early on. I was just telling someone how in the 80s, how horrible band names and restaurant <laughs> names are. I was in a band called Images. Ah. And we'd go to Images and we would play at Attitudes and I would get my hair cut at Scissors. You know, those names. But yeah, I I had bands. I was just a guitar player in a lot of them. Ah. That's what I did. And I, and I also played around with a lot of different bands. Even now, that's why I believe if you've got a song that you think is a good song and you work with great musicians, even from different genres. So for instance, I'll have a song, Jetpack, and I'll play it with, I have my rock band in New York City, and it's all girls who are amazing, and we're, Di- we're Dinah Shore Jr. Come on, is that a good name? <laughs> and it'll have, let's say, when Jetpack comes in for the last verse, it'll have more of like kind of a, a semi, not rock, but vibe to it. It's, you know, kind of more of a traditional thing. And then sometimes I'll play with a band called Sex Mob, and they're kind of like downtowny jazz when the, the old knitting factory vibe, you know, a guy oh. plays a slide trombone and it's kind of, so it has this other kind of like, it will have jetpack at the end will sound like a strange salvation army band. And then I'll, I'll do it with a group, a quartet called Ethel. And at the end, it'll be a beautiful strings. So I think if you've got a good song, you can play with it in so many ways. Well, and I would think the simplicity of the song helps really all the songs, the, the three songs that we're going to talk about here even the last one, which we'll get to, the things here are different, which sounded to me so like, ooh, this has got some Joni Mitchell jazz thing. But it's still basically a small number of chords that are just fun little configurations of your fingers. It sounded like you had a capo maybe on that one. No, I'll show you. How <laughs> okay, play. well, we'll get, we'll get to that. Well, yeah, I think when I first started, because I was just a guitar player, my writing earlier on was I tried to use all the expensive chords at the same time. <laughs> I went really fancy. And of course, I was a huge Joni fan who wasn't. But as I started being more lyric-oriented, it kind of simplified. I wasn't as muso. So Robert Eaton produced this record, right? The one with Jetpack, yes. So tell me a little more about how an arrangement like this would come together. I mean, it sounds like you've got a good song. You can get any number of people to come in. And as long as they have nice musical sense, they can lay down some backing that you'll be more or less happy with. You know, you've got the string arrangement. You've got a very controlled, you've got this, the way the percussion is, it's almost subliminal that it kind of comes in in some of the verses and is just this little, never opens up into a, even a regular drum beat. Where did all this come from? How did, how did these elements come together? I think what we did, and, and when I work with Robin Eaton and Brad Jones, we've worked with each other forever. So I think with that track and with a lot of them, the very first thing we did was put me in the booth with a guitar and a vocal. And a click track or, or no? Do you play with a click track? Or? You know, sometimes it depends if I feel like we need to add something or if there's any kind of, you know, for later, any sequencing. But right. I don't think we did. And also, I, I'm really good at, I mean, sometimes they'll be amazed that, like, they can put a metronome at the end of a song, and it's even. So I've got some sort of strange rhythmic sense of keeping it the same tempo. <laughs> but I'm not sure if we used a, a click track for that, but I don't think so, because drums were not such a big part of it. Mm-hmm. So I would think that we looked at that, and we looked at the track, Maybe Brad played bass along with me. And then we saw, okay, let's put strings at the end. Let's put the little arpeggiated guitar in. But that's one way of doing it. A lot of people, you know, they do their rhythm section first, the drums and the, this was just like, no, here's the guitar and vocal naked and let's dress it up a little. I used to just always record my part is the guide part. It's the guide part. And then the rhythm section is going to do their stuff and then I'll replace it. But I kind of have gotten lazier over the years and like, no, I just want to do a good performance in the first place and just match that. It's, I don't want to. Re- <laughs> oh, I know. Me too, because I used to hate, it'd be like the very end of things you do. You My first record when I worked with Todd, it was like vocals are the last thing you do. And then it's nerve wracking. I like to get that vocal out of the way. <laughs> Yeah, you can always fix it later if you hate it, but you can always fix it later, yeah. 
Well, here I am just asking you about the uh, arrangement, and obviously you're you're all about the lyrics. So you told the story. It's not just it's inconvenient to get to the other side. There's class envy. There's, there's class. the other side to see how the other side lives, you know, because I obviously I don't live on Fifth Avenue. I think in a lot of songs, is that, was that album Underdog Victorious? Yes. I think it was. So there's a lot of sad-ass underdog, and I, I have a feeling that a lot of that album was that, and, and you get the feeling with this person who's narrating the Jetpack song that there's a sort of wistfulness, a little bit of sadness, but hope at the same time. Okay, so even though this was inspired by a real experience, it's fictionalized and you've created a little character out of this so that you can kind of over-dramatize it in certain ways. Maybe right. not over-dramatize, but you can further dramatize it. And it's really, like I said, a cinematic journey. It's like here I'm flying over Fifth Avenue and I'm and here I'm over the stadium or the old Dodger stadium in my imagining here I'm over the Brooklyn bridge and there I'm towards Staten Island. And, and like I said, it's a love story, but also a love note to New York city because I'm from Colorado and I moved there probably 10 years, about eight years before I wrote that song. And it's such a, you know, all this soaring, both in the lyrical imagery and just you know, what you're doing with your voice at the end of it, my jet pack, holding it up there. It's a nice balloon ride. It's not <laughs> on your back. There's no, there's, it's a romanticized. Oh, no, no, no. That, that wouldn't be audibly pleasant. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, no, it's, it's beautiful. You forget about the, the no, oh, no. <laughs> Yeah, it's soaring. It's almost like I've got the flightless, the glider. The gl- uh, hang glider, yeah. Okay. I think this is one of the songs where the lyric was probably written before the music was put into it. If I remember, we were writing down these kind of stream of consciousness lyrics and putting them into a form. And I don't think the music came until we thought about the chorus. And then I think somehow we thought, ah, this feels like that sense of that little arpeggiated roaming guitar feel and that kind of Nielsen feel. And there's a kind of early 70s feel to it. Uh, But the lyrics came first. And I think that's true with a lot of my stuff. I know a lot of people, they start writing with, here's a groove here's my drum machine, or here's a guitar riff. And I would say a lot of my times are, what's my idea? What's my story? I think of it like Jetpack. It's, it feels like a little novella. It's got the, the beginning, there's a middle, and sometimes I have surprise endings. And how does the co-writing actually work, with even with lyrics? I mean, I know you're just a, a lyric machine and can crank out lots and lots of lyrics, but I also know it can be very pleasant to have somebody else you know, that you're throwing ideas back and forth, both to participate in the idea generation and just to help with quality control. So you don't have to sort of second guess yourself. You have another person that can say. Yeah, it's got to be. I mean, I'm not one of those who co-writes the kind of way of either the Nashville way of like, okay, I've I've got five writing sessions today from 10 to 11. (laughs) I've seen this person and uh, else the modern way where you've got your top line person, you've got six people working on a pop song. Um, First two doesn't pop enough. Let's get let's workshop it a little more. It's amazing to think like a, a modern pop song is written by this team of people that try to figure out, you know, like putting together a puzzle of what's going to be the next big hit, and and it's very funny. Not saying that's not legitimate. I mean, there, there was the Brill building, you know, that was, uh, but it's a different beast. It feels like, but with Robin, because we've known each other for so long. What's great about it, and he's. So he's not like a, a normal, I would say, songwriter, pop writer. He's, he's like both of us. We're both. We have trouble putting things in an organized fashion. We're both kind of poets that we can't figure out how to make a song out of things. And But the thing that works is that we have a relationship where we are not precious with each other. Like he goes, hey, I've got this idea. And I'm like, you know, that's the worst thing I have ever heard. And we'll laugh and and I think that's what makes it great. And it's funny because I remember his his wife, who's amazing, but saying how at first she was jealous because she can't share what I share with Robin. And uh, she's right. You know, <laughs> there's something so intimate about having that kind of a, a writing relationship. 
I mean, is that the kind of thing that there's more of a need for, or you found more of a need for as you've gone on in your career, you know, that when you start, you have your notebook full of stuff that you want to get out and then, okay, I've, I've more or less gotten that out. I have more things to say, but I'm open to more playful, uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's hard to be just like you're saying to be really attached to the message that you want to get out if you're in a co-writing situation at all. You know, I think maybe this is a good time to, uh, Robin can tell you how I do it. Well, bring him in if you'd okay. like. <laughs> I'm just saying, Robin, <laughs> this is Mark. We've been talking about the writing process and he asked me, well, we're talking, we've been talking about Jetpack. Oh yeah. Classic love song. Classic love song. But he was saying, is it weird? You know, how do we write? And, and uh, what was the question? This is lucky. You've got him here. Yeah, no, this is... We this don't is, do this all that often because... Yeah, here you I'm go. the man in the background. He's the man in the background. I guess tell a little more about... I've been in different co-writing situations, none of which have been extremely successful, but it, it's most often... Are, most are not good. It's often uh, me coming up with a lot of ideas and maybe the other person is acting more as quality control of kind of helping sift through them, or ideally both people are coming up with ideas and you're both kind of just playing off each other for those... Those are the two parts of songwriting, is, is coming up with the ideas and then saying, let's choose this idea over this idea. How does that work with the two of you? Is, there, is one of you more one role than the other? Or... Uh, exactly. I mean, we just kind of... We, we just kind of talk. do it. We talk. Like today, know. I mean, our first day we get together, we just sit and, and talk, and then we try to write, and nothing comes out, and we say we'll never write again the rest of our lives that we're horrible. But then we just sort of play around, and we both have a similar kind of poetical bent, I guess you could say. And we're both We're kind both of, a little out there. We're, we're both a little, little ADD and We're both there. a little ADD. We both lose our keys and... <laughs> You know, or are constantly ass dialing people. His, his wife says we're like two peas in a pod. So, so it's like I'm riding with someone who's like my brother. Who's yeah. And when we met, we kind of immediately knew that, and that was a long time ago. Immediately, we knew that we we would click, and then we got together, and I don't know. We just saw it. we're up in this attic, and we were just had guitars and strumming a cushion, as they say in Nashville. But okay, so here's the one thing, like today, the last times we've gotten together is because we've been working on, there's a musical we're working on. Times Square. It's called Times Square. Do you remember that movie, Times Square? They, it was a great soundtrack. It was a, it was it a was, really bad From the 60s back. or something? Late 70s. Okay, okay. Kane Adel days. Yeah. So anyway, what's been great is when we write for that is we have, someone's telling us what the idea is we have to write. So lately we've been writing like, okay, we need, we need a song of conflict right here between Pammy and her dad. That was the question. So it sounds like with Jetpack and with these things you're describing, it's because you're basically writing literature together. It's not that even though this was Jetpack was inspired by a personal thing, a situation that started it, it wasn't, this thing is weighing heavy on my soul and I need to get it out on paper and another person can help me do that. It's more playful and theatrical than that. Yeah, exactly. Have there been songs that you've written together that started as more of this thing is so deep in me that I can't even articulate it, but, you know, a personal... Actually, the last song we wrote uh, two days ago, my mom passed away last month and we were very, very, very close. Mm -hmm. and, and it's been weighing very, very heavy on me. And we were just talking about my mom and someone said to me, well, you wait for her. She's going to come to your dreams. And, and she hasn't yet, you know, and I'm waiting. And that was what we wrote about. It was like a call for her to come to my dreams. And so that was, that was something out of need, but it, it came out of a conversation. They didn't come out of Robin. I have to write the song. It was us having a conversation. And, and then it came and sitting on the couch, sitting on the couch and then, and having like, two guitars kind of strumming along and you know you kind of come to it it's a it's not that easy to find a, a collaborator you know and and we've had we just know each other we just know each other inside out you know I, she knows more about me almost well probably than my wife does. i was telling him that i was telling him that your wife originally was like jealous because she says oh, there's things that we i can't that you know i can't share with robin i'm going well yeah you know? like of course i mean theoretically the whole point of psychotherapy is that you've got things that you're trying to express and having another person there to, to be the midwife to draw it out of you would be helpful and i'm just surprised that, that as 
songwriting and lyrics I don't hear on that model very often. It's usually it's more the ecstatic poet getting the personal thing that's in your head or the workshopping like you're writing a sitcom together or writing a, you know, it's a public piece of theater, but actually having it personal yet shared, it does seem like it would require the kind of intimacy that you, you two have developed, you know, by doing this for so long. Yeah. yeah. So that's what, and, and he came here for four days and it was really good timing for me because I felt like the last thing I wanted to do was, was write songs. <laughs> you know, I'm like, no. And so Having him here also, you know, it was good for me because when it means I don't want to write songs, it means I just don't want to deal with issues. I just don't want to deal. I just want to watch TV. I just want to keep busy. Yeah. And so I think here. But Elaine, her, her mother was always, you know, every morning she would call us and or call Jill and hi, mom, you know, and then the mother would go like. She loved you. What are you doing today? And <laughs> is that handsome man there that I'm thinking, do I stand a chance? And yeah, I'm like, well, a big yeah, crush I'll, on I'll, uh, yeah, I'll consider it, Elaine. You know? So when he came here, obviously it was, you know, my. It, it's, it's the first time Vegas. we've been together since my. Uh, yeah, and she was. Uh, so that's obviously. So important, so important, and also, you know, contributed to Jill's performances, called Sometimes. on the phone. Oh, yeah, she was fun. Sang songs on Skype. I mean, on. You know, she would hold up her mother in, in front of people. So there's a kind of catharsis that happens. And that's something that I think happens, that we've found has happened through songs, you know. Yeah, and you're saying about shrink. Actually, going to a shrink, I get more out of, for instance, I get more out of, this, out of the last two days of a writing session than I do paying someone 200 an hour, yeah. which it is in, in Los Angeles. And we'll have these things where... You're not doing anything or, you know, what's oh, yeah. going on, you know, uh, what good are you anyway? Yeah, yeah, we'll I mean, get into fights like, we're used to terrible, be, it's not, in we're the old used days, to be good. In the old days, the where old there, was, days. there was a lot of pressure, you know, from the record company and stuff, and it was like, we're not, we're not doing it, I guess it's over, you know, and then, you know, of course, we come up with something great. And that's also, there's certainly something great, and sadly, because we're, we're not writing huge top 40 pop hits, but... We can write whatever the fuck we want, you know? So can we bring in the second song? So Empty Glass. Yeah. So coincidentally, this was written originally for a musical and yet is the kind of, at least sounds like the kind of visceral PJ Harvey kind of (laughs) angry song. It has actual swearing in it. Not so sweet, uh, although still very hummable. Although this version is from the California years from 2009. Do you want to say anything about what the musical was and why you wrote it for that and why you redid it? It came from a musical called Prozac and the Platypus. And and it's a very kind of odd, off, off Broadway kind of, it's not Mary Poppins. It's really about an angst-ridden teen whose mother committed suicide and she hasn't come to terms with that. And she lives with her scientist dad in Australia who researches sleep and sleep cycles in the platypus. It's got a lot of weird science in it. And and so this one comes from her. I mean, she's like a little punk kid and she's an angst-ridden kid. And so that's why you hear that kind of darkness because that that's her character. But that doesn't mean when I write for other characters, I still dig into myself as a 16-year-old or even as a middle-aged woman, like, you know, still have that angst. I was going to say, I see how what you're saying applies to the song, but as, as I've been listening to it, I've been thinking like middle-aged divorcee in terms of... I, I know you can't, <laughs> writing for musicals, you're writing for these other people, but I can't help but put myself in there. by the bed all the tears turn to stone and i feel so alone empty glass by the bed you are cold you are dead and the room shrinking small where'd you go when you went when your heartbeats were spent and you fucking lied yeah you fucking lied never told me you died all alone in my head all alone in my bed empty 
Got a slash, got a gouge, got a slice. Cut through everything twice. Cut through me, cut through you. Cut the skin where it's blue. And the tears gotta flow, gotta be empty. So I'll hold off asking about the arrangement. Let's talk more about the song first. Are we actually getting toward there's suicide imagery in here? There's an empty glass by the bed, and like that's where her mother took something. Okay. And she remembers seeing the empty glass. So there's narrative to that. And it's her kind of not understanding why, because no one ever really told her really what happened, and anger at her father, anger at her mother. I think that's the worst part of it. Of, to me, that's the most troubling and painful thing is not knowing something. What's worse when someone breaks up with you or for the, that month before thinking like, I think they're going to break up with me. I think they're seeing <laughs> someone else. Right? The, you know. And to me, that's where the empty glass is. It's that not knowing. So there's not knowing there's no way to resolve anything. Okay, so the story you're telling, the empty glass is actually like a significant plot point, whereas I was seeing it as, you know, the little detail that you notice that tells you that someone is gone, that reminds you that someone is gone. In other words, that the glass is just something that they would often have by the bed, and it just is still there, uh, and goddamn, like, just another thing that you haven't cleaned up yet. But this makes more sense, what you're... (laughs) Yes, it hints about that glass, so, so you still are kind of trying to figure it out. At that point. And then when we get to the got a gouge, got a slice, cut through everything twice, cut the skin where it's blue. Where are we going with it? This is getting toward contemplating suicide of the narrator or? Well, she's also, she's a cutter. Okay. But there's that always the danger that you can go too far. That's how she deals with life is cutting. All right. So it's all very literal. When I was a 19 year old writing songs like this, I would use imagery about suicide and, but no, that's, it was all imagery. It was all dramatic effect. This is an actual theatrical description. And as a musical, was it just, here's a song cycle that has a plot that we're going to tell you in the program what it's about? Or was it a whole like actual actors and actresses on stage dressed as things doing this? <laughs> well, yeah, you didn't see, it was subtle. I mean, it wasn't like Spider-Man, you know, the, <laughs> the musical, you know, where he rises up and then he falls and yet has an accident. But I mean, it, it was, it was subtle, all this, you know, with the acting. And so you still had to figure stuff out. Okay. I was trying to find this on, if there was YouTube footage of this, I didn't look too hard, but I mostly just saw you performing these songs. Was the musical, like, were you performing these in the pit? As you know, as part of the, or was it actually no, 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 outsourced? No, okay, it's the theater company. It, uh, we had the the actors doing it. Yes. Okay, and how did that work? Just to bring it back to the co-writing. So Elise Thoron, so she's the playwright. 
She's the playwright and worked on some of the lyrics with me. And she, I think, I'm not sure if that was her first musical. She is just an incredible, beautiful wordsmith. Okay. And like I said, it's it's kind of like she's known in kind of more avant-garde circles. And so here bringing in this more pop person, this was a great experience for me. All right. So you were brought in to, to provide the music, whereas I often think about when a pop singer, a pop group ventures into the land of musicals, they'll bring in a collaborator, somebody who's done musicals before, you know, to then like to write with, to do that kind of orchestration. And then, but. Well, I think that the reason they had me and I'm also doing, uh, last week I did there, there's music to, you remember Yentl? Oh yeah. You know, but it was a beautiful short story in, in the 60s, Isaac Bash of a singer. And mm-hmm. then it was a play in the 70s. This was before Barbara Streisand got her hands on it and made it a Barbara Streisand extravaganza. But last week I was in St. Louis. I put music to the original play. Ah. So, but I think people have asked me because I'm not, I don't know how to do it. I'm not a traditional musical theater person. So with Prozac and Platypus, she had a kind of punk rock band and strange band. So what I don't like is when you see musicals, I used to see that are rock musicals like Rent. And it was like, no, that is musical theater. (laughs) There's nothing rock going on there at all. (laughs) So someone that came from a different background than that. So I, I think that's why I've been asked to do some of these things. Well, have you ventured yourself into, did you help or do the actual orchestration for the strings for Jetpack? Or is that a foreign... I remember with that one, I think I had the idea I did. I think I either Brad Jones might have written that, and he was one of the, the co-producers. Okay. We all, you know, we're all together going, ah, yeah, we need that high string. We need that. You know, I kept thinking, everybody's talking about me. So for a musical, when you're not going to be in the pit, it's not like you're going to run the band. Are you writing out all the parts? How are, how are you actually constructing the score? With... Yentl, because it's kind of a faux, klezmery kind of feeling. But uh, there's parts for uh, uh, clarinet, trombone, violin, and I have I have an arranger for that. Okay. The other ones, like Times Square and even Prozac and Platypus, they're a lot easier because they're mostly, you, you can do it with a rock band. But with Yentl, I had to have someone help me with arrangements. I'm not an expert at my klezmer. <laughs> no, and like Danny Elfman doing all these scores. I think he still uses Steve Bartek, who is the guitarist for Oingo Boingo with him. He's, he's listed as the arranger for all these things. So being a soundtrack person, I know Paul McCartney did the same thing. You know, he wrote his Liverpool Oratorio and somebody else arranged it. It was just more being a musical person. You don't necessarily have to know how to write for oboe. <laughs> That's a pain in the ass. Like there's times I've put together, like you could say the Prozac and Platypus where I've got the fake Mellotron samples and I can play with stuff and, and come up with parts mm-hmm. when it needs to be something that feels it's beyond my pay grade. Someone who's, I think is really good. To help 66 out. piece orchestra that somebody else can. <laughs> I don't know that stuff. I didn't go to, I'm not schooled. <laughs> well, let's look at the uh, empty glass arrangement here. So the, the original version that's on the, uh, Prozac the and Platypus. yes, the Jill sings <laughs> Prozac and Platypus album. Right. You know, there are elements of that that are still in here, you know, during the chorus, the ding, 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 ding. And I, yeah. and I get the feeling that almost throughout that whole arrangement, like that's how all the instruments are, that when drums come in, they come in going, dun, 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 like, this is simple. We're going to have simple pieces and they're going to be in your face. And whereas when we get to this California years version, you know, like when you have the drum and bass punctuating things in the second verse. So you, again, like you like to do in the first verse, you're, it's just guitar and you. But in the second verse, it's not the drums and bass don't just come in. It's kind of this halfway in between where they're just going boom, crack, or you know, just little things here and there. But it's all very subtle and nicely arranged. It doesn't seem like the kind of thing a, a band would jam. It sounds like the kind of thing in a studio you would say, okay, let's add this little thing here. Right. Well, when we did the Prozac and Platypus, I pretty much produced it and, and did the whole thing and didn't have much. Also, I love it. But it was one of those things of, uh, it was just me. With California years, I had an actual producer. I had Don Was, and then I had a rhythm section 
with Prozac and Platypus, I can tell the drummer, oh, I want to hear this. I want to do this. But in California years, the drummer was Jim Keltner. Oh. And you don't tell Jim Keltner <laughs> what to do. <laughs> I'll never forget. We did one song. This wasn't on the record where I said, ah, yeah, you know, I hear this kind of like, remember that concert for Bangladesh, Billy Preston song? That's the way God planned it. Yeah, I hear it kind of like that. Do you know that song? And everyone laughed at me. And Keltner was like, yeah, that was me. You know, that's I, I played with George Harrison. Then I was there on the stage with Ringo as the other drummer. Uh-huh. So Keltner, that was him on drums. And Don was on bass. So I, I kind of gave up some reins. Tell me about Don as a producer, as opposed to some of the other producers. It was Don's role. Like I noticed a lot of the little noises, the little, you know, you finish the second chorus and you've got the descending background vocal thing, which is one of the prettiest, coolest parts of the song. And you've got just all these little noises, like you're scraping the top of your guitar, the strings or the inside of a piano, or I don't know, but those are all on the solo version too, pretty much. Yeah. I really love that. I could have just used it, but uh, Don was like, I really love that song. Like, you know, because it it wasn't on one of my proper records. So Ah. he goes, let's, let's do that song. And it seemed like, well, gosh, I like the way we did it, so let's not deviate too far. Well, let's bring in the third one. We can still talk about the second one a little more, but let's get the third one out there before things get too uh, long here. Going back to 1990, things here are different from the album of that name. So were these songs written before you got the deal? Like, how old is this song? That song was, oh boy, yeah, that was older because that's a song that I've been playing live. That mm-hmm. one. Things here are different. The Pilar one. Yes. That's actually the official title, Pilar, parentheses, things here are different. I had played that solo in a band before I came to Todd Rundgren's studio. So that was the ones that I had practice with. Some of the others had never, they were newer, and I hadn't had that comfort level with them, which can be good and bad.
So what is the story here? What is this? Who is Pilar? Someone whose husband has died and now in Spain of what time period is this current? This was early 80s, thinking back on, yeah, I went to Spain for a year and I was living with a family who were very, very conservative and Catholic. I mean, they had a picture of Franco next to Jesus. I mean, that was kind of serious. And it was about their daughter, Pilar. And I'm coming from a whole different place where, you know, I went to school in Boulder, took women's studies classes, you know, and here she was. And this is, you know, it's so amazing because Spain was one of the very first, I think, country to legalize gay marriage. And it's such a liberal country. But back then, it really was so conservative, especially in southern Spain and Sevilla. Sex roles were completely divided. It seemed like to me, it seemed like the 50s or, or turn of the century. And so it was my conversation with her and trying to give her my modern sensibility, uh, American sensibility of what she should be doing with her life and her kind of telling me, well, you know, bugger off, you know, <laughs> like, like, yeah, I see what you're saying, but you're an exchange student and, and your life is a little different than mine here. So it, it was really an end about the changing world in Spain at that moment. So you've written a lot of character songs, the album with the one about Mary Kay Letourneau, and there's, it seems like almost every song on there I felt was like some kind of character thing, but are they all rooted for the most part in real situations or like Jetpack in you know, something from your life that then you make into a character piece? Or are some of these just from whole cloth? Well, I think when there's songs for me, no, I th I think that they're... I mean, I have to have some interest in it. And I think we can't take ourselves out of it. Even the song about Mary Kay Letourneau, it's really about secrets mm -hmm. and things that could be shameful secrets. We all carry secrets. I mean, somehow I related to her as another underdog victorious, even if she was seducing an underage boy. But somehow we felt like it was okay because she was a girl, you know, so strange. And they got married and they're still married. But it was one of the tabloid stories that, that fascinated me. So then going back to this one. What was interesting about, I did my third year of college in Spain. And I was going to school international affairs, which I thought just seemed like a really good title to be an international affairs major. It's just fancy. And I always had this music. But at that point, it was like, you know, who makes a living doing music? And I wasn't even thinking of doing this as my vocation. And one day we were walking down the street, a friend and I, oh, we decided we're going to busk on the street where a lot of the Spanish street musicians play in Sevilla. And I started playing for the very first time my songs because I thought I'm never going to see these people again. They don't know what I'm saying. So it was the first time I actually really sang. I never sang. I was just always the guitar player in the band. And a guy walked by and said he had a nightclub and would we like to play his nightclub? And so three weeks later, I dropped out of school and was just playing this nightclub. And I always think if that guy hadn't walked by, who knows? I might be selling real estate at Century 21 or... Uh, so how did you end up working with Todd Rundgren on this? How did you... Well, so then I had the bug and I went home. I was in Denver. I did a bunch of open mics and then people thought that there was something to it. And then I sang with a band called Images, and I sang their stuff. And it was so weird for me just to be a singer because I, I never thought of myself as that. And then I got a band together, various bands. And then I thought, you know what? I meant, really, I was a star in Denver. There was one time for three weeks on Colorado Boulevard, the sign of the Holiday Inn had my name on it. <laughs> That's right. I went as far as I could in Denver, so it was time to go to New York City. So uh, I went to New York, and then I go to Nashville, and, and then some A&R person at some festival. There was one in Nashville called Nashville Extravaganza, which is like South by Southwest, and, mm -hmm. and I got signed. And how I worked with Todd was I was always a Todd fan, but, you know, there's the people that, that are the Todd heads. The really crazy <laughs> Todd fans. And my A&R person was a crazy Todd fan. And I think wanted to meet him. And it was the time he was doing a lot of production. So that's how I started working with Todd. And it was a really hard experience because I was completely intimidated. He doesn't have that kind of bedside manner. And uh, 
it was a tough experience, that record. So do you feel like it was that this record, the rest of the arrangement on this song, it's you and your guitar doing basically what you were doing live, but then everything else you had nothing to do with? Or was it less extreme than that? <laughs> well, I did. I, he would do, but I think I was too intimidated. I, I didn't, also, I didn't feel confident enough in asserting myself. So there was a lot of things that mm-hmm. uh, I kind of just let Todd do. And there were some things I loved and some things I didn't. It made a lot more sense. I listened to this whole album not knowing and just thinking like this whole thing is coming from a kind of a different jazz angle than everything else. And as soon as I read that, oh, Todd Runninger produced this, that completely made sense. Like, oh, that's his sound. Is <laughs> not just obviously you yourself had an affection for that kind of thicker chords, as you were saying, but having that slimy, fretless bass riff that is very present. I'm not saying that in a negative way, but it's it's very distinctive sound in the second part of the song. Yeah, yeah. There's a part of me that grew up like loving the yacht rock. And, you know, like I said, I like the jazz chords. Well, and Joni Mitchell did the same thing. So if you're into her, she had, she had the jazz 70s albums. So I, I rebelled a little bit and, and I was like, you know what? No fretless bass anymore for me. <laughs> <laughs> And I love fretless bass, but it was like, no. I think she married her fretless bass player. Is that three chords and no more? (laughs) And an interesting approach to percussion in here, too, that you've got this just very sparse with a few answering like tambourine things. Like when you finally say Spain, all the windows wear black. And then here's this little tambourine clave thing. Yes, we're in Spain. (laughs) That answers. I love that. I love that aspect. Again, it was having that kind of more of a a visual or cinematic appeal. And I was glad, you know, because another person could have just put dumb drums on it. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, and just having the whole thing at the end explode into this flamenco, 45 seconds of flamenco claves (laughs) or whatever they are. Yeah, that's right. I like that. To bring back a little bit of the empty glass thing, there are subtleties that you do even in the lyrics so like the chorus of empty glass you know just saying empty glass that the rhythm is never quite the same from chorus to chorus and in some of the choruses even you know if you repeat it three times it's empty glass or it's empty glass or it's empty glass <laughs> like are these just things that would come up like as a natural part of performance to make it interesting or was it a little more thought out than that oh no i think what what it probably was was going through the song and then it's probably also the ADD in me that, you know, <laughs> like I will never sing the song the same twice. Sometimes the band is like band members have to watch me like a hawk because they know that I like to change up things. And yeah, I'm not as bad as Chuck Berry, who they never know what key he's going to start in. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I was listening to the other day? And I thought, this is such a great song. It was on the, the satellite 60s channel. And they did, what's new, Pussycat? Whoa, ah. Pussycat, Pussycat. I bet there's just, there's like weird things that happen, chords, and there's weird rhythmic changes. And I, and I was like, it is genius. And, and I think that, like I said, I get bored. There's a fine line of repeating things which is wonderful to have a kind of monotone and droning thing but then changing it up here and there well speaking of the rhythms i mean in all these things as also somebody who plays acoustic guitar as a strumming thing i mean you kind of get sick of your own strumming patterns after a while that like (laughs) that in jetpack it's this one two three one two three one two one two three one two three which i like half of my songs use that and i wish there was a name (laughs) it's not a separate, you know, it's just four, four. It's not a neat, a special, I don't think there's a name for it. You just switch to piano when you get tired of (laughs) your strumming style or. For instance, like writing, going back to when I did the happy town record, it was like, I get so bored of myself and then lazy and you go back to the same chords, the same rhythms, the same tempos. So you have to figure out ways to shake that up. Like, uh, I'm taking drum lessons or even with this, the last song that I wrote about my mom with Robin, he brought in his electric baritone. Oh. So you automatically, you know, when you pick it up, it was so funny. The song we wrote about my mom was like, let me see that thing. And I'm just, you know, randomly playing chords. And it was like, that was the song we did. But I would have never come up with that if it was my normal guitar, my normal steel string, because it, it was just 
here was this weird instrument, you know, and different, you know, it's in B and so, and then sometimes going back to a Joni thing, it's, I had never really have played with tunings before. Yeah. And lately I've been trying to do a little more with that just to do something different because you can't, you will tend to go to the same stuff and get stale. Well, in Pilar, there's this drone through the whole song. So it's, right. it's the whole thing is in F sharp, I think. I thought you had the second capo up because it's the F sharp that's droning and you're playing like a little, <laughs> you're going to show me. So it's like this. I see. All right. So I'm doing that. So that's pretty much it. And that's where I ain't school because I would just, I'd say like, it's something funny with an F sharp in it. Well, that's the joy of being a guitarist that you come up with these cool chords that I guess I was going to say when you switch to piano or something, then you don't necessarily think that way. But if you're unschooled on piano, then you do the same thing. Like it's groups of fingers. Like that's cool. I don't even know what that is. I could look at it and kind of, okay, it's got a B and an F sharp and a, and an E and a C sharp in it. All right. That's some kind of like diminished or, you know, you can figure it out after the fact, but it just doesn't even matter. It's just kind of, it's shapes of the fingers and then adding a capo or adding, doing a different tuning, then it becomes even weirder. That's the joy of like, it's also great at picking up instruments you really don't know that well and, and play something. Yeah, I recall like Peter Buck saying, you know, that why he switched to mandolin for so many things. Like he knew how to play guitar too well. So he just wanted to have an instrument that he was not as familiar with to be able to discover, to stumble across things like yeah. that. Auto harp. That should be your next thing. I love auto <laughs> Then you don't discover anything. You just push the button for F sharp, though, I guess that I haven't. <laughs> I have a friend in Nashville who did some sort of like weird mutant auto hop, made it where he could get diminished chords and seven chords. And he did. Yeah. I a treated auto harp. That's beautiful. <laughs> that takes a serious level of boredom to really treat your instrument to make it into something that's not even a guitar anymore that you've. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Maybe a little harder to do the kind of humble uh, stuff that you gravitate to in that environment. If that was the, if that was the goal, I don't know, but it'd be fun. <laughs> Anything else about these three songs that we want to hit? Any aspects before we just introduce the fourth and get out of here? I feel good. I can't think of anything at the moment. All right. So the one that you had sent me, which I think we should go with, was a new version of "America Back." I knew I'd heard this song before, but then I went back through your albums. I didn't find it. Well, it's never been really properly recorded. There's live versions of it that have gone around. Okay. I saw it was on your guitar primer from 2013, and it was on the Jill and Julia show. I saw you do a live thing in 2014. It's never been recorded. It's just been a requested song on tour. And then since the election, it's been going like wildfire. <laughs> it seems like you could redo this every four years, at least, with different little sound bites. <laughs> Because you've got the... No kidding. But we're going to do a video for this. And what I'm doing also is we're going to have a website and launch a platform where people can put their kind of more socially conscious or protest songs. And we're going to do a compilation record. And this is going to be the springboard for it. Nice. I'll tell you more when we get it happening. All right. Then the arrangement in here is pretty elaborate with horns and things. How did money go? How did this get put together? Well, that's a very good question. Well, I had the song and then I thought, you know what I really want to do is give it a kind of Mexican band of flavor, which I kind of love with that tuba and a little mariachi. And so my friend who's in Osumatli, he has a studio in L.A., Boyle Heights, and I had people working on it. I went there and I had mariachi horns and, and then I brought it to these mixers and had them who were kind of more pop mixers and, and had them do their thing to it. So is Trump responsible for your wanting to make this into a, put a Latin band on it? Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I guess he's accomplished something good. With America Back, I've been doing NP. I've been asked to do a lot of actually some radio. Uh, there was a progressive radio. So I've been talking about music and politics lately. That's been a fun one. Yeah. I was just browsing over your YouTube channel this morning of the, uh, who is a democratic socialist song and some other things <laughs> like that. It's kind of neat when you're not writing songs for 
you know, this is the album or this is the musical that it's just, it's serving some other purpose, that it's serving a political purpose oh, no, or whatever. It's, it's easier to write. <laughs> and they're very joyful to write. But now I'm going to go write another song. Well, all right. I won't stop you. Have a wonderful day. Bye. Bye. Remember the Garden of Eden Before Eve hung out with that snake You could walk down the street Not worry about thieves All the kids could go trick-or-treating Then those foreigners started coming in Like the Germans in 1790 Then the Irish arrived The potato blight neighborhood started changing life was better we lived right life had a paler shade of white when they say we want our america back our america back our america back when they say we want our america back well what the fuck do they mean Island. And that statue we got from the French Well, that horse stimulating with strangers She's flirting, inviting them into our beds The guineas, the coolies, the wetbacks, the reds The Jews, now those terrorists And who let in the woman looks after my kids And the one who is cleaning my mess Life was right When they say we want our America back, our America back, our America back When they say we want our America back, well what the fuck do they mean? We stand up and fight to take our country back Our country! People are pouring over the borders, pouring Our country! Let's speak American They're not sending their best We've come to take our country back. Before the gays had the agenda, before the slaves were free, before that man from Kenya, he took the presidency. When they say we want our Thanks so much to Jill and to Robin Eaton. Wonderful interview. Very informative. I hope you check out JillSobiol.com. Maybe look her up on YouTube. If you like this podcast, please go check out NakedlyExaminedMusic.com for more episodes. The next one, which will come out within the next week, will be my interview with Chad Clark from Beauty Pill. He's sort of an NPR darling, meaning the most recent album is very highly rated. I think you're really going to like that interview. I then spoke with Dave Nachmanoff, a folk guy, super talented. And the new news... The last two interviews that I've done, first I talked to Trey Gunn, who was for a long time a member of King Crimson. He was a Robert Fripp's right-hand man. He's played with Brian Eno, David Sylvie, and other luminaries. And then I finally talked to John Langford from the Mekons and the Waco Brothers and his solo work. Those are two guys that are just super talented in very different ways. Trey is very deliberative, very disciplined, kind of learned to play a brand new instrument that almost nobody else plays. Where with John, it's just ideas coming fast and furious at you. Very laid-back approach to arrangements. Really fun collaborations with people. 
I feel very enriched by both of their bodies of work. So I hope you come back. Until next time, this is Mark Meyer signing off. I'm gonna be a supermodel.